tonight I want to talk about the nature of Nibbana as described in the suttas, right? I mean, I'd like to do the nature of Nibbana from personal experience, but okay. Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was staying near Savati in Jeta's Grove on a Tapindika's Park. Now at that time, the Blessed One was instructing, urging, rousing, and encouraging the monks with Dhamma talk concerned with Nibbana. The monks, receptive, attentive, focusing their entire awareness, lending ear, listened to the Dhamma. And then on realizing the significance of that, the Blessed One on that occasion exclaimed, There is that dimension where there is neither earth, nor water, nor fire, nor wind. Neither the dimension of infinite space, nor the dimension of infinite consciousness, nor the dimension of nothingness, nor the dimension of neither perception or non-perception. Neither this world, nor the next, nor sun, nor moon. There, I say, there is neither coming, nor going, nor staying, neither passing away, nor arising, unestablished, unevolving, Without support, this, just this, is the end of dukkha. This is from the Udana, the (coughs) divine utterances, and this is the utterance. And it's a a dimension, a, a space, where there is neither earth, nor water, nor fire, nor wind, nor any of the higher jhanas, nor this world, the next world, nor sun, nor moon, there, there's neither coming, nor going, nor staying, nor passing away, nor arising, unestablished, unevolving, without support. Uh, it seems a little contradictory until you realize that basically what it's saying is there aren't distinctions being made. No arising, no passing away, no sun, no moon, no busting things up into the elements a realization that actually all there is is the entire universe and that the separations that we see are artificial constructions. Now this is Udana 8.1 and we have 8.2 which has the same introduction at Savati, the Buddha speaking on Nibbana. It's hard to see the unaffected, for truth isn't easily seen. Craving is pierced in one who knows, for one who sees there is no thing. All right, so if this isn't making a lot of sense to you, that's because it's hard, it's difficult. But if you can get to the point where you're experiencing the seamless whole that we call universe, then there are no things and there's no thing to crave. And if there's no craving, there's no dukkha. That was 8.2. And then we have 8.3. There is a not born, not brought to being, not made, not conditioned... If there were no not born, not brought to being, not made, not conditioned, no escape could be discerned from what is born, brought to being, made, conditioned. 
But since there is a not born, not brought to being, not made, not conditioned, there is an escape. There, an escape is discerned from what is born, brought to being, made, conditioned. So this is the famous unborn, unbecome, unmade, and here it's unconditioned. Unconditioned is a terrible translation of asankata. A is the negative, so that the un, they got that part right. Sankata is the past participle of sankara. Remember, a sankara is a concoction or a fabrication. It's not a condition, right? It's something that's made. So this is something that is not made. The unconcocted, the unfabricated. So better would be to translate it as the unborn, unmade, unbecome, unconcocted. But... In Pali, there are no articles, no a, an, or the. This is really important because people want to talk about the unconditioned or the unborn or even the unconcocted. That's not what the Buddha was saying. When you say the or even a, you're tending to give it ontological existence. That is, there's Nibbana out there. Right, And if you practice hard, you can get there. Or maybe if you practice hard, when you die, you get there. Well, that's called heaven. You better hope that Nibbana does not have ontological existence. Because it also says that Nibbana is unchanging. And... If Nibbana doesn't contain you right now and it doesn't change, you're stuck on the outside forever, right? So the way in which it's unchanging is that it's a realization. And everyone who realizes Nibbana realizes the same thing. Now, we have past participles, unborn, unmade, unbecome, unconcocted. But in Pali, past participles serve much the same function as gerunds in English. A gerund is something that ends in ing. So, not being born, not making, not becoming, not concocting. All right, this gives us a much better picture of what's going on. Normally, we wander around concocting the things of the world. Bell, helmet, table, leprechaun bus shelter, right? Person, microphone, Buddha statue, Kuan Yin, right? We're busy concocting the universe. This is a good strategy because the whole of the universe is a bit too big for our little pea brains to understand. And so we cut it up into bite-sized chunks to deal with it. But that's what the relative reality is. In order to find freedom, in order to escape dukkha, it's necessary 
to get beyond all the chunks. It's necessary to see the universe as an unfolding whole. I heard a Dharma talk by Joseph Goldstein, and he pointed out that you should really think of yourself as a verb rather than a noun. And I thought that was really good, you know, because I'm the digestive process, I'm the circulatory process, I'm the mental processes, etc. So I'm, I'm really actually a collection of verbs. And then as more I thought about it, I realized, actually, there aren't any nouns. There's just slow-moving verbs. <laughs> okay? And then I discovered that the Navajo language doesn't have any nouns. Right? So I'm busy personing, just like you are. And this is tabling, or bus sheltering, right? If, if it's a leprechauning that's looking at it, right? And then I begin looking at the world as verbs, and then I begin to get an idea that the verbs aren't separate. They're actually quite interrelated. And when I actually saw what was happening, there was just one verb unfolding. That's all there is, just unfolding. Now, we could say the universe is unfolding, but the universe actually is a little bit misleading. There's just this vast unfolding. It unfolds lawfully. It unfolds in, well, when we begin to initially carve it up more accurately as nothing but streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. That's how the unfolding happens. And if you can get beyond the entities and start seeing bigger and bigger pictures of all the things that have come together to make you, you, all the streams coming in and the streams going out of you with every action and the same for everything else going around, then you stop giving birth to entities. You stop making things. This becoming isn't happening. And most importantly, the concocting ceases. So this is what's being pointed to here. How do you get there? Well, there's another sutta in the Udana that I think is perhaps one of the more profound ones in the whole canon. You might have heard of it before. It's the Bahia Sutta. Thus have I heard. Once the Blessed One was staying at Savati in Jeta's wood on a Dependicus Park. And at that time, Bahia of the Bark Cloth was living by the seashore at Supaparaka. He was respected, revered, honored, venerated, and given homage, and was one who obtained the requisites of robes, alms, food, lodging, and medicines. So Bahia of the Bark Cloth was living by the seashore as a holy man. Now, why was he wearing bark cloth? Well, It turns out that there are the Upanishads, the 
early teachings of Brahmanism. And one of the earliest ones is the Brihad Aranyakar Upanishad. And the Brihad Aranyakar Upanishad makes a big deal about trees. Bahia is wearing bark cloths because he's a follower of the Brihad Aranyakar Upanishad. Okay, the commentaries, bless their little hearts, they say he's a shipwrecked sailor, right? And he was washed ashore and he was naked and so he covered himself with bark cloth and people started giving him alms food because they thought he was a holy man. The commentaries had no clue about the Brihadaranyakar Upanishads because the commentaries are written in Sri Lanka many centuries later and they knew nothing about Indian civilization at the time of the Buddha. And so they came up with this fanciful story. But most likely, he was a follower of the Brihadaranyakar Upanishad. And he was successful. Now, while in seclusion, this reflection arose in the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth. Am I one of those in this world who is an arhat or have entered on the path to arhatship? And then a deva, who was a former relative of Bahia's, approached him and out of compassion said to him, You, Bahia, are neither an arhat nor have you entered the path to arhatship. You do not follow a practice that would lead you to become an arhat or even to find a path to arhatship. And then Bahia said to that deva, well, who in this world is an arhat and who teaches the path to arhatship? There is Bahia in a far country, a town called Savati. There the blessed one now lives who is the arhat, the fully enlightened one. That Lord Bahia is indeed an arhat and he teaches Dhamma for the realization of arhatship. Then straightway Bahia of the bark cloth set his lodging in order and set out to journey to Savati. He stopped only one night at each location along the way. In other words, he traveled all day, he stopped, he slept, he got up the next day and kept going. No goofing off for this guy. He arrived at Jaitis Grove on a Tepinticus Park, and at that time a number of bhikkhus were walking up and down in the open. Then Bahia of the Bark Cloth approached those bhikkhus and said, Where, reverend sirs, is the Blessed One now? The Arhat, the fully enlightened one. We wish to see the Blessed One. The Blessed One, Bahia, has gone into town on alms round. Then Bahia hurriedly left Jaitis Grove, and entering Savati, he saw the Blessed One walking for alms food. Pleasing, lovely to see, with calm senses, tranquil mind, attained to perfect poise and calm, controlled, a perfected one, watchful with restrained senses. He sort of stuck out, I guess, the Buddha. <laughs> if you saw him, you were like, yeah, that guy's the real deal. On seeing the Blessed One, Bahia approached fell down with his head at the Blessed One's feet and said, Teach me Dhamma, Lord, teach me Dhamma, so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. Upon being spoken to thus, the Buddha said to Bahia of the bark cloth, It is an unsuitable time, Bahia. We have entered among the houses for alms food. 
If you got your food by going on alms round, then it was not a good idea to be interrupted by somebody wanting a teaching. Because if you stop to give them a teaching, by the time you finished, there might not be any alms food. So the custom was, if somebody was on alms round, you let them go get their meal for the day, and you wouldn't bother them. But Bahia, a second time, said to the Blessed One, It is difficult to know for certain how long the Blessed One will live or how long I will live. Teach me Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me Dhamma so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. And a second time, the Buddha said to Bahia, It is an unsuitable time, Bahia. We have entered among the houses for alms food. A third time, Bahia said to the Blessed One, It is difficult to know for certain how long you will live or how long I will live. Please teach me Dhamma. Teach me Dhamma so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. So sometimes when you ask the Buddha three times, he'll give you an answer. Herein, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In seeing, there will be merely seeing. In hearing, there will be merely hearing. In sensing, there will be merely sensing. In cognizing, there will be merely cognizing. In this way, you should train yourself, Bahia. When, Bahia, for you in seeing there is merely seeing, in hearing merely hearing, in sensing merely sensing, in cognizing merely cognizing, then, Bahia, you will not be with that. When, Bahia, you are not with that, then, Bahia, you will not be in that. When, Bahia, you are not in that, then, Bahia, you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of dukkha. Now, through this brief Dhamma teaching of the Buddha, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth was immediately freed from the asavas without grasping. Then the Blessed One, having instructed Bahia with this brief instruction, went away. So the Buddha gives this teaching to Bahia, and he becomes fully enlightened, like bingo. Okay, so why did the Buddha give this teaching, and why was it so effective? In the Brihad Aranyakar Upanishad, it says... The unseen seer, the unheard hearer, the unsensed sensor, the uncognized cognizer. This is your Atman. This is your higher self. And the Buddha goes, nah, and just seeing, they're seeing. Hearing, there's hearing. Sensing, there's sensing. Cognizing, there's cognizing. Ain't no Atman. Just sensory input coming in. So Bahia probably had been doing this practice a long time. The Buddha knew, hey, this guy's a follower of the Brihadaranyakar Upanishad. He's a serious follower. He's wearing bark cloth clothing. He's been doing this practice. I'm going to tweak the practice just slightly. And in so doing, Bahia got it. If you can get to the place where there's, in, when seeing, there's just seeing as opposed to seeing objects. In hearing, there's just hearing. In 
instead of hearing crows and airplanes and whatever, in sensing, just sensing, in cognizing, just cognizing, you've gotten past the world of dualities. You've gotten to the place where you're not making distinctions between subject and object. When by here you can do this practice, basically there's no you in that and there's no you in this and there's no you in between. You've stopped making the distinction between subject and object. Just this is the end of dukkha. And Bahia got it. Not long after the Lord's departure, a cow with young calf attacked Bahia of the bark cloth and killed him. This seems to be a thing that happens at the time of the Buddha. It's sort of like, I guess, a drunk driver today. I mean, you might hear, so-and-so went to a Dhamma talk, and on the way home, they were rear-ended by a drunk driver and killed. Except they didn't have drunk drivers, they had cows with young calves. And if you walked in between them, you know, it could go really badly for you. Bahia was not the only person this happened to There was also a former king of Taxila who resigned his rulership and traveled all the way to Rajagaha looking for the Buddha and encountered the Buddha one night in a potter's shed and told the Buddha, not knowing the Buddha who he was, that he was looking for the Buddha. And the Buddha gave him a discourse and he got to the third stage of awakening. But he was killed by a cow the next day. And then there was Supa Buddha the leper who saw a collection of people and he thought maybe they're giving away free food. So he went to get some free food, but it turned out they'd come to hear the Buddha. And the Buddha gave a Dhamma talk and Supa Buddha the leper got to stream entry. But unfortunately, he was killed by a cow with calf. So it happens. There was also one of the generals in King Pasanati's army who was killed by a cow with a calf. Now, the commentaries, bless their little hearts, they say it was the same cow. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, ignoring the fact that some of them took place in Savati and some took place in Magadha, and cows just didn't travel that much in India. Uh, I don't think so. But, you know, that's the commentaries for you. But anyhow, poor Bahia got killed. When the Lord, having walked for alms food in Savati, was returning from alms round with a number of bhikkhus, on departing from the town, he saw that Bahia of the bark cloth had died. So Bahia did get to enjoy his full awakening for at least some time, because remember, he encountered the Buddha in the city, and then he at least got out of the city before he was killed. Seeing this, the Buddha said to the bhikkhus, Bhikkhus, take Bahia's body, Put it on a litter, carry it away and burn it, and make a stupa for it. Your companion in the holy life has died. Very well, reverend sir, those bhikkhus replied to the Lord. Taking Bahia's body, they put it on a litter, carried it away, burn it, and made a stupa for it. Then they went to the blessed one, prostrated themselves, and sat down to one side. Sitting there, those bhikkhus said to the blessed one, Bahia's body has been burnt, sir and a stupa has been made for it. What is his destiny? What is his future birth? Bhikkhus, 
By he of the bark cloth was a wise man. He practiced according to the Dhamma and did not trouble me by disputing about Dhamma. Bhikkhus, by he of the bark cloth has attained final Nibbana. In other words, he was fully awakened and now he's died. Then on realizing the significance, the Lord uttered on that occasion this inspired utterance. Where neither water nor yet earth nor fire nor air gain a foothold. There gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. There shines no moon, there no darkness reigns. When a sage has come to know this for themselves, through their own wisdom, then they are freed from form and formless, freed from pleasure and from pain. Now this is similar to what we found in the other suttas. When neither water nor earth nor fire nor air gain a foothold. It's not to say that there aren't solid liquids, gases and energies, but they don't gain a foothold in the mind. There there gleam no stars, no sun sheds light, there shines no moon, yet there no darkness reigns. The duality between light and dark, that's not happening. There's no stars, sun, moon, any of that. It's not breaking it up into bits and pieces. It's not breaking it up into opposites. When a sage comes to know this for oneself, through one's own wisdom, then one is freed from form and formless, from material and immaterial, from mental and material, freed from pleasure, freed from pain, freed from having to pursue pleasure, freed from having to deal with pain, freed from the opposites. So here we have a description of Nibbana that's basically saying it's a way of perceiving the world so that you're not concocting solids, liquids, and gases, and you're not concocting light and dark, or material or immaterial, or even pleasure and pain. And the way to get there is to practice in seeing, there's just seeing, in hearing, there's just hearing, in sensing, there's just sensing, in cognizing, there's just cognizing. Can you open your senses and simply rest in the experience? without grabbing hold of things. This is the practice, basically, that the Buddha gave to Bahia. There's another sutta that has an interesting description of Nibbana as well that sort of builds on this. This is the 11th one in the Long Discourses, the Kevata Sutta. Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was living at Nalanda, and there Kevata, the layman, approached the Blessed One, saluted, sat down at one side, and said to the Blessed One, you ought to send some monks into town to do some miracles. People will be really impressed, and they'll give you lots of alms food and robes and build you some nice kutis. And the Buddha said, 
That's not how I teach Dhamma. Besides, there are only three miracles. There's the miracle of knowing the minds of others. There's the miracle of walking on water, flying through the air, etc. And there's the miracle of instruction. If the monks go in and they walk on water or fly through the air, the townspeople will say, they've just got the Gandharan charm. That's how they do it. And if they go in and read the minds of others, they'll say, they just got the Matika charm. That's how they do it. No, the only miracle that really counts is the miracle of instruction. And what is the miracle of instruction? A Tathagata arises in this world who teaches the Dhamma, good in the beginning, middle, end. Someone hears the Dhamma, gains faith, goes forth, keeps the precepts, guards the senses, mindful of what they do, content with little, abandons the hindrances, practices the jhanas, with the mind concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, given to imperturbability, gain insight into the nature of reality, and with such a mind overcome the asifas. This is the miracle of instruction. Now that's the first half of the sutta. It seems very complete in and of itself. But then without skipping a beat, the Buddha says to Kevata, once there was a monk who attained to such a degree of concentration that he could visit the heavenly realms. And that monk wanted to know Where do the four elements cease without remainder? Now, clearly we're going off into another story here. Looks like two stories stuck together. Why these two stories? Because they were both given to Kevata? I don't know. Anyhow, that monk who wanted to know where the four elements cease without remainder attained to such a degree of concentration he was able to go to the lowest of the heavens. And there he approached the devas and he said to them, Excuse me, good sirs, can you please tell me where the four elements cease without remainder? And those devas in the lowest heavens said, We don't know. Maybe you should ask the four kings. They might know. So then that monk, concentrating his mind, managed to go to visit the four kings, and he went up to them, and he asked them, Where do the four elements cease without remainder? And the four kings said, we don't know, but maybe if you ask the devas in the next heaven up. And so that monk, concentrating his mind still further, went to the next heaven up, and he went to the devas there, and he asked those devas, where do the four elements cease without remainder? And those devas said, we don't know, why don't you ask the guys upstairs? And so he continued, up, 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 up through the heavens, until he got to the heaven of Brahma's retinue. And he went up to the devas of Brahma's retinue, and he said to them, Excuse me, good sirs, can you please tell me where the four elements cease without remainder? And those devas said, We don't know, but you should ask Brahma. He knows everything. Well, where can I find Brahma? Oh, no one knows where you can find Brahma, but... If you're patient, he shows up. When he does, there'll be a great light and there'll be smoke and a smell of beautiful incense. And so that monk sat down in a corner and began to meditate. And it wasn't too long before there was a great light and smoke and the smell of beautiful incense. 
and great Brahma arrived. And he announced, I am Brahma. I am great Brahma, creator of the universe, Lord of all. I see everything. I know everything. And that monk went up to him and said, excuse me, can you tell me where the four elements cease without remainder? And Brahma said to him, I am Brahma, great Brahma, creator of the universe and Lord of all. I know all and I see all. And that monk said, you already said that. I want to know where the four elements cease without remainder. I am Brahma, great Brahma, creator of the universe and Lord of all. I see everything and I know everything. And that monk said, I didn't ask you who you were and you already said that twice. I want to know where the four elements cease without remainder. And then that great Brahma took that monk by the arm and led him aside and he said, these guys think I know everything. I don't know where the four elements cease without (laughs) remainder. But from the looks of you, you're a Buddhist monk. You should go ask the Blessed One. He'll know. And so then as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm and draw it back, he disappeared from the realm of Brahma and he reappeared on earth. And he went to the Blessed One, saluted and sat down at one side. And sitting there, he asked the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, where do the four elements cease without remainder? And the Blessed One said to him, Bhikkhu, you have asked the question wrongly. No, he said, you have chased all over the heavens looking for the answer to this question and not finding it, you come back to me. You should have come here in the first place. But you've asked the question wrongly. Instead, this is how the question should be asked. Where do earth, water, fire, and air no footing find? Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul, where are name and form wholly destroyed? Or where do they completely come to an end? And the answer is, where consciousness is signless, limitless, and all illuminating. That's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. They're both long and short, small and great, fair and foul. Their name and form, materiality and mentality, all come completely to an end. With the cessation of consciousness, all of this comes to an end. And the Lord spoke in the householder Kevata, delighted and rejoiced in his words. All right, so what did the Buddha say? It's not where the elements come to an end. It's where they don't find a footing. And the answer is where consciousness is signless, limitless, and all illuminating. So what is this signless consciousness? It's the consciousness that's not chopping the world up into bits and pieces. There are no signs of things. It's the consciousness where in seeing, there's just seeing. Hearing, there's just hearing. Sensing, there's just sensing. Cognizing, there's just cognizing. It's the consciousness that's not concocting. Right? The unconcocting consciousness. It's limitless because there are no boundaries. And it's all illuminating. 
everything is seen clearly. Everything is seen as undifferentiated. There's just the undifferentiated whole. There's just the unfolding of the undifferentiated whole. That's where earth, water, fire, and air no footing find. They're both long and short, small and great, fair and foul. Their name and form totally come to an end. With the cessation of consciousness, this all comes to an end. Well, it all made sense up to me until this last little bit with the cessation of consciousness. What, you got to go unconscious and that's Nibbana? That doesn't make any sense. But then I took a class with John Peacock, and he pointed out that the word vijnana, which we're translating as consciousness, literally means divided knowing. And so it's actually going back to the root of the word we're translating as consciousness. With the end of divided knowing, all of this comes to an end. If you stop chopping it up into bits and pieces, then all of the opposites come to an end. All of the concocting comes to an end. And there's nothing but Streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. But actually, that's not even accurate. Because it's not streams. It's just one giant stream. And you stop picking out individual streams. It's just this giant flow of dependently originated phenomena interacting. There's a modern writing that comes from Kitaro Nishida. And this is from The Nothingness Beyond God. Pure experience is the beginning of meditation. Does that sound a little bit like in the seeing there's just seeing, in the hearing there's just hearing, in the sensing there's just sensing, in the cognizing there's just cognizing. Pure experience is the beginning of meditation. It is awareness stripped of all thought, all conceptualization, all categorization, all distinctions between subject as having an experience and as experience as having been had by a subject. It is prior to all judgment. Pure experience is without all distinction. It is pure no-thingness, pure no-this or that. It is empty of any and all distinctions. It is absolutely no-thing at all. Yet its emptiness and nothingness is chock-a-block fullness, for it is all experience to come. It is rose, child, river, anger, death, pain, rocks, and cicada sounds. We carve these discrete events and entities out of a richer yet non-distinct manifold of pure experience. This is Nibbana. Being able to rest in that space is waking up. 
Nagarjuna, who was one of the founders of the Mahayana, lived in the first, second century AD. In his Mulamayamaka Karika, the fundamental verses on the middle way, in chapter 25 of the 27 chapters, talks about Nibbana. And he says that Nibbana is also empty, which, as he points out in chapter 24, means Nibbana is also dependently originated. And he further identifies Nibbana and samsara. He says, Nibbana's horizons are samsara's horizons. Samsara's horizons are Nibbana's. There is not a whit of difference between them. If you look at the world with the eyes of a worldling, chopping it up into bits and pieces, what you see is samsara. But if you look at the world with the eyes of a Buddha, what you see is Nibbana. This is samsara. This is Nibbana. The only difference is how you see it. If you can see it without the craving and clinging, then there's no dukkha and it's Nibbana. Any questions? <laughs> what? Which which one are you? The Garjana is the Mulamayamaka Karika, the fundamental verses on the Middle Way. Uh, Stephen Batchelor has a a very readable translation called Verses from the Center, and I would suggest working your way through that multiple times, and then you can look at Jay Garfield's Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way. Uh, both of those have a commentary on what's there. Uh, Jay Garfield's is a more literal translation, but Stephen Batchelor gets you in the mood so you can figure out the literal translation. Your ending sounded very beautiful, but it implied somebody who's looking in one way or the other. No, it implies in seeing there's just seeing, hearing there's just hearing. Sensing, there's just sensing. Cognizing, just cognizing. Not somebody yeah, seeing. You can't say what you said, which is, it depends how, which way you look at it. It depends upon which way it's looked at. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes, you're correct. When I put this in the next book, I'll have to correct that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Right. Lawfully unfolding means that things don't happen at random. Things arise dependent upon causes and conditions. Uh, The law of karma is part of this. If you do something unwholesome, it causes pain. Right? If you take something heavy and hold it over your foot and let it go... (laughs) It hurts. 
This is how it unfolds, because part of the way it unfolds is the law of gravity. You know, gravity is just part of how this whole thing unfolds. But don't go making an entity out of gravity, right? It helps us understand what's going on, but you've really got to step back from all of it to get rid of the craving and clinging, to experience freedom, nibbana. Okay. This afternoon, sort of contemplating the extent to which my life is made up of just cling, uh, craving things. Everything, basically. <laughs> it's sort of rather disheartening. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, I just still, still going back to this kind of walking past the bakery thing, um, which I just haven't quite got, which is uh, um, so if you take the example of someone like chocolate, right? Yeah. So, there's no purpose except producing pleasant labor, that's it. It's the only purpose of chocolate. I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> I find it to be actually something that really helps quite a lot with having my mind in a good mood and not wanting something else, so it shuts off the craving. Uh, okay. <laughs> when it's satisfying, but if I don't have any chocolate, it produces dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, because I was just trying to work out whether like, any attempt to produce pleasant vedna on my part, as opposed to giving it to someone else or receiving it as a gift, only if it would be upsetting if it didn't work. I mean, if you, if you want to give somebody a nice present and you give it to them and they go, I already have one of these. And you're like, oh, well, then I'll give it to someone else. Or, well, now you have two. But if you're like, oh, I tried to do something and I failed. Yeah, you were craving to have a certain reaction and it caused you dukkha. So, right. so, you can, you, so you can still do things for oh, yeah. your own well-being yeah. in, in the sort of completely mundane sense. Right. And it couldn't, it, there's a chance you might not be craving. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Buddha went on alms round. You know, he was getting food. And if he'd gone on alms round and he got no food, he'd be like, well, don't eat today. Right? Whereas we go on alms round and... No food, and it's like, don't these people know I have to eat? <laughs> right? We've got the craving part. So, yeah, it's possible. It's difficult, though. I was just going to say that if there, there's a spectrum. As long, until you're enlightened and you, and you continue to conceive in terms of a self, it's, I think, practically impossible to, if you look deep enough, to find action that doesn't involve some kind of egocentric grasping, but it's a big spectrum, and there's lots of room to reduce it um, uh, in, you know, with the practice and, and effort. I would agree with all of what you said, except that I would say that any of us can actually be genuinely open-hearted and not, not do it from an ego perspective. It's not that hard to learn. Yeah, You do something just because it makes the world a better place. Right? You give an anonymous gift... And you give it in a way that whoever receives it is going to benefit from it. And you just do it because you want the world to be a better place. That's one way to do it. Now, you might be doing it like, I'm such a great person, or, all right, but it is possible to get beyond that. I guess 
Yes. Right. The, craving is not the be-all and end-all of your motivation. It's just the one that gets you in trouble. So yeah, you might be hungry and you go past the bakery and it smells really strong and it might be that you realize, yeah, I do need something to eat and you go in and you pick something that's somewhat healthy or not, right? Uh, and yes, we are tending to respond to our senses. We respond to our environment. That's what the senses are for. Help us to navigate the environment. And so that is definitely body-based. We see things, smell things, hear things, and respond to them. Can we do it wisely? Can we guard the senses so that we don't get caught up into craving and thereby generate the potential for dukkha? That's what the Buddha is saying. Learn to do that. And the way that gives you the biggest bang for the buck is to stop chopping the world up into bits and pieces and just see it as the whole unfolding. But it's hard to get there. You've got to practice. That, it, it reminds me of what um, Jesus said about the Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So Jesus said, if you want the kingdom on earth, you need to look with the eyes of a child. That's the same as beginner's mind. Yeah, very definitely. Explore without grasping. Yeah, just, just experience. That's, that's what's being aimed at. Is the Buddha suggesting that mindfulness, you know, a moment of mindfulness is or is it into I don't think he ever says a moment of mindfulness is a moment of nibbana. But uh, certainly Ajahn Buddha Dasa in talking about it said that a moment without craving is a moment of nibbana. Right? So yeah, you, you begin to get a taste of what it's like when you can drop the craving and so forth. It's only it's only when you get the experience of Nibbana not as an intellectual understanding 
either by reading this stuff or hearing about it or anything else, but have that experience for yourself. Is it really transformative? But along the way, yeah, if you can be mindful, if you can guard your senses, then you're much less likely to start doing the craving and therefore not get caught up in the dukkha. You're freed from dukkha, and that being freed from dukkha is, yeah, nibbana, momentarily. About? Determinism. Yeah. Determinism is a concept. So there's just the unfolding. Yes, exactly. Can you see the unfolding without the concept of unfolding? The best I can do is point my finger at the moon. Right? You're going to have to get past my finger and actually see the moon. Right? So the concept of determinism, when you look from the ultimate perspective and you're looking at it and seeing this unfolding as happening, and you notice how it's unfolding lawfully, the concept that's best going to explain it is determinism. But you still got to cross the street, and you still got to look both ways. You still got to operate from the relative reality. And when you do, the concept that's going to be most helpful is free will. But in both cases, they're just concepts. If you truly see the without concocting, when you, if you truly see, if you truly experience not being born, not making, not be, becoming, not concocting, then there's no, it's not conceiving, not conceptualizing. And so there's not free will, not determinism. Those opposites have disappeared. You're just in this space. But don't try and cross the street from that perspective. Oh, we certainly don't know all the laws, but we do know enough of them that we can behave ourselves, and behaving ourselves tends to make the thing unfold with less dukkha. It doesn't cause harm to ourselves or others. I suppose that's thinking about um, on a very on, on the levels of some of the strange interactions between consciousness and and the way matter actually seems to exist in different states. So the, the laws themselves may be yeah, we, we, mysterious and complex. Yeah, we don't really understand all that's going on. And yet very much, if you look at modern scientific writings, we're almost there. And we've been almost there since, what, the Middle Ages? <laughs> you know, in the early 1900s, they wanted to shut down the U.S. Patent Office because everything had been invented. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what we don't know. But you don't need to know a lot. The Buddha basically says what you need to know is dukkha arises dependent upon craving. And there's methods where you can learn to stop doing that. Less restricted in terms of your ideas about yourself, 
and therefore you're freer to respond in, in, in different ways to ways that you, you know, because you don't box yourself in as much. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's actually kind of freer. Yeah. Yeah, the free will gets freer. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's quite interesting how it unfolds. Yeah. It's just that when we're trying to go free will versus determinism, we're stuck in the high, low, hard, soft, short, tall dichotomies. We're still hanging on to the four elements having a nice, solid footing. And we need to have, to, we have to step beyond all that to really find the freedom. Okay. Um, and in your talk, were you um, saying that um, because of our nature, our humanness, our kind of makeup in relation to the world, um, that Vedana, like we would find a particular sound, like your fingers down the blackboard, um, an unpleasant sensation, and therefore kind of everyone, because they're made up the same that that will not change. Right. The Buddha certainly experienced unpleasant Vedana. He had a bad back, and sometimes he would give an introduction to a talk and then turn to Sariputta and say, please, elaborate. I need to lie down. My back is bothering me. And he'd go lie down and listen to the talk, and when it was finished, he'd come out and say, if I'd given a talk, I'd have said the same thing. <laughs> okay? So, yeah, he his back, was producing unpleasant Vedana. So being fully awakened doesn't prevent the unpleasant Vedana. But you don't have to get upset about it. You just deal with it. I guess, my, um, I guess I wasn't very clear in my question. It's more specific than that, which is, say, I'm eating tahini. And to say, say I'm eating a particular fit of food, uh-huh. And like o- over the years, you might then get, get to like that food. And so you have what you were saying, a secondary um, associated Vedana, which is pleasant, and therefore your overall Vedana mm-hmm. is pleasant. Um, and so does that particular food, that bitterness, produce that same unpleasant Vedana throughout? I think it actually... I think it actually does change. I think little kids have different taste buds and things do change and the stuff that they found really unpleasant doesn't taste the same when we grow up and we're adults and we like it. So I think... I think so. I'm not certain. Okay, but I have heard that, especially for little kids, they don't like strong taste because it's overwhelming. And that's why they don't like those awful vegetables, because it's too much. And then you eat a lot of hot sauce and burn out their taste buds. And then, <laughs> and then. But yeah, some of the stuff, some of the stuff is yeah, hardwired, like the ratio of whole numbers for the, the overtones, and doesn't change. The taste, yeah, that can definitely change over time. Uh, I mean, I didn't like olives. And I thought, I should learn to like olives. And when I got to Greece, it was like, I don't think I can find a better place to learn to like olives. It took about three days. 
You know, it's just getting used to the taste as opposed to going, ooh, this tastes terrible. I guess that can apply to the other senses then. Yeah. To, to some extent. Some of it is malleable, some of it isn't. The, the dark blue squares and the dark orange squares on the floor was not at all malleable. All those years, it still was nauseating. Yeah. Okay, we've run out of time. So uh, I think I'm going to do a really quick metta, and then when I finish it, those of you who need instructions for the bell ringing can meet Lucy out where you signed up for the bell ringing and she can show you what to do. In order to begin, please put your attention on your breath for a few moments. Imagine that in your heart is a kitchen, and in the kitchen there's a stove. And on the stove, there's a big pot of soup, a pot of really delicious, nourishing soup. And then imagine that you serve yourself a bowl of the soup from the kitchen of your heart. Now think of someone that you care about and invite them into the kitchen of your heart and serve them a nice bowl of nourishing soup. Think of other people you're close to. Bring them to mind one by one and serve each of them a nice bowl of soup from the kitchen of your heart.
Think of your acquaintances, people like your neighbors and co-workers. Bring them to mind one by one and serve each of them a nice nourishing bowl of soup from the kitchen of your heart. Think of someone you find difficult. Yeah, you can even serve soup to the difficult person. Serve nice, nourishing bowls of soup from the kitchen of your heart to everyone in this room. And to everyone here at Gaia House. That pot of soup is endless. You can serve soup to all the neighbors around here. You can serve soup to everyone in Devon, to everyone in England. Doesn't matter how much soup you serve out, there's plenty more left. You can serve a nice nourishing bowl of soup to everyone in Europe. There's enough soup in the kitchen of your heart to serve a nice nourishing bowl of soup to everybody on this planet. All the hungry people get fed. Now put your attention back on yourself. Hanging out in the kitchen of your heart, surrounded by the people you're close to, and everybody enjoying the nice, nourishing soup that 
comes from your heart. May all beings everywhere be happy.